Welcome to the Five By, the snappiest, five minutesest, quattro weekliest board game podcast. In this episode, Meepa Lady takes us to Greece with Acropolis. Jose shows us post apocalyptic storytelling in The Quiet Year. John masters glassblowing with Mille Fiori. And Justin is in Chicago's famed Union Stockyards. But first, a wildly unusual board game setting Medieval Europe with the Carcassonne Big Box, reviewed by me. I don't need to explain Carcassonne, do I? I mean, come on. You're listening to a board game podcast. If you haven't played Carcassonne, you've seen someone play it at a game night, or at least heard about it. I'm not going to cover the basics of how Carcassonne works, but if you want to hear more along those lines, check out Mason's previous review in episode 100 of The 5 by. I've played a lot of Carcassonne online. It's on Board Game Arena, and there's an app. But the only physical copy of Carcassonne I owned was the Hunters and Gatherers version. I didn't even have a copy of the original until I recently got the Carcassonne Big Box. Much as I love Carcassonne, and despite its stature as an institution of modern board games, I don't actually think Carcassonne is for absolutely everyone. I don't like it for teaching first-time gamers, because farms make it hard for beginners to know who's winning. But without farms, the game is kind of flat. My other caveat is that the lovely, placid way the game looks and feels can create expectations that are not reflected in the intense cutthroat battle Carcassonne can be. The contrast can be a little weird. Your mileage may vary. You may like that about Carcassonne. For me, I don't like to play mean. I avoid that cognitive dissonance by playing with people who don't play really cutthroat. Like the original Carcassonne, The Big Box has been around for a long time. I have the latest version, Big Box 7, published in 2021 by Z-Man Games in the U.S. It includes Klaus-Jürgen Vrida's original game and 11 expansions. Well, two of those are The River and The Abbot, which are included in the base game now, so can you still call them expansions? Eh, why not? In any case, we played through the entire Big Box, first the base game by itself, not even The River. Then each expansion one at a time, then wrapped it up with a mega game of all 11 expansions at once. I'm not going to describe each expansion in detail because I tried that in my first draft and it took the entire review and then some. Did I mention there are 11? Instead, I divided the expansions into the essential, the great, the good, and the not for us. First, the essential. That would be the river. Just a set of tiles with a river that you play at the start of the game. I love the structure it creates in the early game. It does tend to encourage large farms, especially if the lucky player who gets the last river tile drops a farmer on it. But we like farms. In any case, we started with the river and included it in every subsequent game. For us, it's essential. The great would be inns and cathedrals, traders and builders, and maybe the messengers. Inns and cathedrals and traders and builders are at the top of most best expansion lists, and with good reason. Inns and Cathedrals adds risk, Traders and Builders adds bonus turns and higher scores, and The Messengers adds bonus actions. Three ways to give players more of what makes Carcassonne great. A great expansion doesn't just throw more stuff on the board. It encourages different styles of play. Traders and Builders encourages long roads and big cities because when you get that builder meeple in a feature, you want to keep adding on to it to keep getting the extra turn as often as possible. But the messengers is the opposite. The extra action happens when you score, so you end up completing small features as often as possible to get the bonus action. 
The good expansions for me are the Abbot, the Fairies, the Gold Mines, and the Robber. I thought the Robber would be really mean, but the name is misleading. There's an extra meeple on the score track that follows another player. When they score, they get their full points, and you get half their points too. It should have been called the Piggybacker or the Hitchhiker. And last, the Not For Us. That would be the Flying Machines, the Mage and Witch, and the Crop Circles. They may work better at larger player counts, but at two, they rarely worked as intended. And they were all pretty mean. Carcassonne expansions, at least the ones in the big box, come in two flavors, do more stuff or be meaner. We don't like to play mean, so we prefer the do more stuff expansions. I wouldn't play with any of these again. Finally, the mega game. Everything in the Carcassonne big box all at once. It took hours, and we had to put the leaf in the table. It was a lot of fun, but I don't know that I would do it again. Much of the game was spent flipping through the rulebook to look up exactly what order things needed to happen and figure out how expansions interacted with each other. Some of them don't go that well together, especially having both the robber and the messenger on the scoreboard at the same time. All those extra meeples were so confusing that in the final turn we moved the wrong meeple. We didn't realize it until too late, and we weren't able to score the game. We know who won, it was clear, but we don't know the score. My one gripe about the Carcassonne big box is that the expansion art is often so subtle it makes sorting everything back out at the end of the game a challenge. But this is a small complaint about an excellent collection of an excellent game. And that's the Carcassonne big box, a terrific way into the countless Carcassonne expansions and mini expansions out there and a must-have if you're a Carcassonne fan and want to expand your Carcassonne collection. My name is Sarah. Find me on the social medias, of which there are as many as there are Carcassonne expansions, at Ovenall. That's O-V-E-N-A-L-L. I'll be posting more detailed thoughts on every expansion in the Carcassonne big box. Last year, I was wrapping up a game night, and a friend of mine suggested one more game. I asked, how long is the game? And she's like, 20 minutes. It's really good, she said. I said, sure, let's play. That little 20-minute game ended up being one of my top 10 games of 2022. It was a total surprise how much I loved playing it, considering how short the game was. That game, my friends, is Acropolis. Acropolis is a 1-4 to four player game that plays in about 20 to 30 minutes. It was published in 2022 by Gigamate Games and Hatchet Games, and was designed by Jules Massad and artwork by Pauline Detres. Acropolis is an elegant, streamlined, drafting, tile-laying puzzle. It's the kind of game that looks unassuming, but packs quite a thinky experience in its simplicity and tough choices. The game comes in a small, medium-sized box and comes with 61 city tiles, four starting tiles, four player aids, a score pad, a first player marker, and gray stone cubes. Players are architects building out their individual Greek cities with temples, houses, markets, gardens, and barracks, all while adhering to placement rules. There are three types of construction, quarries, plazas, and districts. The districts come in five types, which are the temples, housing, markets, gardens, and barracks, each represented by a different color. Your starting city tile has four hexagons, a hexagon with three hexagons pointing out from it, leaving space for exactly one hexagon to fit into the spaces between the three outlying shapes. City tiles are three hexagon triangular shaped tiles, with each hexagon either a quarry, plaza, or a type of district. 
On your turn, you choose a tile from the construction site. The first one costs zero, but if you want to get one farther down the line, it'll cost you one stone each spot. As tiles get purchased within a round, the remaining tiles get cheaper and cheaper, depending on where it's sitting on the construction site. You then place the newly acquired city tile into your city. When you place the city tile into your city, it must border at least one edge of another city tile. Or you can place it onto a second level as long as it covers three hexagon tiles underneath it on two different city tiles. Building upwards and outwards is always very tricky to me. It makes my brain melt, but in a good way. This game sort of reminds me of number nine, which is another tile laying puzzle game that you can build upwards, but Acropolis has a little bit more interaction with the drafting mechanism. The five types of districts score differently and have their own placement conditions. Houses, which are blue, like to be together, so you can only score your largest group of adjacent houses. Markets, which are yellow, don't like competition, so they won't score if they're next to another market. Barracks, which are red, keep watch over your city's borders, so they must be placed on the outside edge of your city. Temples, which are purple, attract followers from the surrounding areas, so they need to be completely surrounded by tiles to score. And lastly, gardens, which are green, enhance your city and have no placement conditions. Quarries have no point values, but when they get covered up, they give you one stone per covered up hexagon. Stone is important for drafting the tile you want from the construction site, and any stone left over at the end of the game is worth one point each. But, and this is a huge but, no matter how beautifully you build out your various districts, nothing will actually score unless you have plazas. Plazas have stars on them that match various districts, and these stars are multipliers for that matching district. If you have three markets that score, in addition to plazas with two matching stars, then you score six points for your markets. If you have a chain of houses that is 10 hexagons deep, but no plazas with blue stars, then too bad. You score a big fat zero because 10 times zero is still zero. And if your district happens to go up a level or two or three, that district scores an extra point depending on the level. So that three level temple, in addition to the three purple stars in your plaza, will equal nine points. Do you hear that sound? It's the sound of the wheels of my brain grinding. The game also comes with several variants on how to increase the game's difficulty level, but I think its base rules are perfectly fine to play. Acropolis is all about being good at your spatial tile laying skills, but also managing your resources to be able to get the tiles that you need and score what you've laid out. There's no way you can score every single type of district, as the plaza tiles are sometimes hard to acquire with the drafting. And building up is just another added depth to what can essentially be classified as a filler game. The result is a tense drafting and a very enjoyable city building puzzle in about 20 to 30 minutes. I know I fell in love with it the first time I played it. And that's Acropolis. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on all the socials as Meeple Lady or on my website boardgamemeeplelady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hey everyone, today we're going to be talking about an interesting single-session role-playing game called The Quiet Year, from Buried Without Ceremony, designed by Avery Alder. In this game, you and your group will go through the life of a post-apocalyptic community as they attempt to rebuild as time ticks down before the mysterious Frost Shepherds arrive. In order to play this game, all you need is 
well, a copy of the game, a single piece of paper, some pencils, some D6, and the deck of cards that come with the game. Each suit is going to be separately shuffled before putting back in seasonal order. Each suit represents a season like summer, winter, fall. And then you're pretty much almost set up. There's a quick prompt that sets the mood for the game and also allows the group to figure out sort of the backdrop of where they are, the resources that they have available to them, and any resources that they have that they don't have access to. All of these things are kind of sketched out really roughly onto the blank piece of paper as what the beginning of your community kind of looks like. On your turn, you're going to draw a card from the deck. The cards all have different events on them, and the active player has to choose one of these events to read aloud to the group and give their response. These questions can be pretty abstract. Sometimes they're really specific. They might ask you to describe what something beautiful nearby is, or describe a blight that might be nearby. And as you do this, you're also required to make a sketch of whatever it is onto the blank piece of paper. You also have the ability to do some things like start projects, hold group meetings for the community, and things like that. As everyone goes through their turns, the deck starts to dwindle, and in the winter, there's a specific card that will end the game. Mechanically, this game is really simple and straightforward. Which is actually the first thing that I really love about this game. The second thing that I really love about this game is that it takes my favorite part of role-playing games, which is the communal storytelling, and just distills it down to the essence of what that is. And that is the only thing you're doing in this game. You, you are telling a story together. You don't play a single character in this game. You play a small group of people in the community. And it's not always the same group of people that you're representing. You can represent different groups of people in your community. It's just about how they respond to the specific events that you have to draw. At the end of the game, you're left with this really interesting-looking map that serves as not only just a map of your community, but also the chronicle of the things that had it, had it experienced over the course of time in this game, over the, over the year. This also brings me to the next thing that I really like about this game that really reinforces that this is a group storytelling game is that there's no DM. There's no one person running the game, has a backstory, or has a story in mind that they're trying to get the players through. There's no one like that that runs the game. It does help if one person does know the rules of the game, but they're not trying to influence the group to do any one thing or another. The group is just responding to the things that happen to them, and you're just kind of along for the ride. I wholeheartedly recommend this game, especially if you're interested in role-playing games, but you're not really interested in the D&D, fantasy, playing a character, finding a DM, that sort of thing that everyone kind of already knows. This is a single-session, DM-less game that you can kind of play at any point. And every time that I've played this game, the end always sparks up even more conversation as everyone talks about what happened, how we reacted, how things might have changed if they reacted in other ways. It always sparks really cool conversations. 
If you're interested in this game, you can buy it digitally through Buried with Ceremony site, uh, Drive Through RPG, even Roll Twenty has an implementation for it, or you can actually buy a physical copy directly through Buried with Ceremony's website that give you a physical book and a deck of cards for a pretty reasonable amount of money. If you ever get a chance to, definitely try this game. So with that, my name's Jose. You can find me on Instagram at SirBrezworth or on Twitter, and keep calling it that, at SirBrezworth1. Come by, say hi, let me know how your community's doing. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez. Let's talk about Mile Fiori from designer Rainier Kinizia and published by Devir and Schmidtspiel. It plays two to four players and the box has the playtime at 60 to 90 minutes. In Mile Fiori, players compete to become the most renowned glassmaker on the Laguna di Venezia. At its core, Mile Fiori is a card drafting game with some elements of area control tossed in with some point-sality goodness. Don't worry if you're not familiar with these board game mechanisms, I'll point them out as we go along. So, how does the game work? Well, you shuffle a deck of action cards and deal 5 to each player. Everyone chooses a card to play and places it face down in front of them and passes the rest of their cards to the player on their left. This is the card drafting element of the game. The cards allow you to place one of your 27 diamond tokens on the matching area of the board. There are five areas on the board which represent different districts, the workshops, residences, townspeople, trade, and harbor. Play continues in this way until each player has only one card left. That card gets added to an offer of cards near the board. This is important, which I'll explain later. Okay, so that's how the game works, but how does it play? How does it feel? Well, if you're playing it right, it kind of makes you feel like a mastermind. See, here's the great thing about Mile Fiori. The rules aren't complex, the rounds are pretty fluid, and yet the game offers players the opportunity to get as clever and as strategic as their understanding of the game allows them to. Well, the other players do get in the way, naturally. There are a good number of ways to score in Mile Fiori. The board, like I mentioned before, is divided into five districts, four of which have different main ways of scoring points. This is the point salad aspect of the game. In the orange workshop, you score points by adding your presence there, so you want to keep adding to your own network of covered spaces. Specifically, you get one point for covering up a space with your own diamond, plus one additional point for every one of your own diamonds already connected to that newly placed diamond. There are four icons to repeat throughout this area, and you can only place one of your diamonds on a spot with the corresponding icon of the card you are playing. There's one special icon, the pigment icon. This icon will score you two points for placing it and two points for every covered space in your own network. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Except if you're playing with me, then don't worry about it too much. The purple residences are a long line of spaces and every time you place one of your diamonds, you score the amount of points on that space, usually a number between one and five. Although there is one 10 point spot. But you also get points for any previously placed diamond in your color that are connected to the one you just placed. You can really rack up some points in this area. Needless to say, you always want to keep an eye out on the residences. Don't let someone run away with this one. Except, well, if you're playing with me, then don't worry about that area. The townspeople area consists of two separate areas that operate the same way. Here, you're using your cards to place your diamond tokens in an area shaped like a pyramid. Placing a diamond on the base level gives you one point, second level three points, and the top gives you six points. There are three symbols represented in the two areas, but you aren't required to place your diamond in the spot matching your card's icon. If you do happen to match it, you score double points. 
If your placement creates a triangle shape of either two or three levels, then every player in that triangle formation rescores their points for the diamonds based on what level they are on. The blue trade area consists of four different commodities arranged in columns of five. When you place a diamond token on a commodity, you gain points equal to the number of commodity spaces filled. So if there are four jewelry spaces covered, it doesn't matter by what player or players, you score four points for every one of your tokens in that commodities column. But every player who has a diamond in that commodity scores as well. So yeah, keep an eye out on that, except if you're playing against me, then don't worry about it so much. Lastly, there's a harbor area that integrates with the column of the trade area, and I won't go into much detail here because I'm already running a bit long. This one scores when a row of three ships gets filled and scores for an amount of points based on how many commodities are filled in the adjacent trade row. Now, the game really shines with the addition of bonus actions. Every area has a way of letting players earn bonus actions. When you surround the bonus action icons in the workshop area, you get an extra action, for example. And the way a bonus action works is that you take a card from the offer and play it right away. In this way, not only can you get more actions, but also set yourself up to actually claim the top spots in any of the other areas. It's an amazing feeling when you combo up and take one or two or three extra actions. Uh, when other people do it, not so much. Every area also has bonus points if you're the first to cover up the three or four unique icons in that area. There's also a ship track for when you don't want to or can't use the cards in an area. You can move your ship token along the track to gain bonus actions and points. The art in Mille Fiori is bright and elegant and it does well to distinguish it from other games. It also intimates something more alluring than the abstract nature of the game itself. Oh, and the diamond pieces I've been talking about this whole time, they are really nice looking see-through plastic pieces in purple, orange, yellow, and blue player colors. The game looks quite nice on the table. Anyway, check out Mille Fiori from Reiner Canizia. For the 5 by I'm John Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Justin here, back for another month at the 5 by Do you know what the best thing about the board game community is? It's a pretty flat hierarchy. Now here's what I mean. When I go to conventions, I can chat with someone like Rob Daviau, the designer and creator of the Legacy Gaming format, with games such as Pandemic Legacy, just by stopping by the Restoration Games booth. When I want to reach out to other content creators, such as the Thinker Themer team of Maggie and Amy, I can just message them on Instagram. When I want to meet other gamers, everyone is so friendly at local gaming events in places both here in Chicago and around the world. Recently, I reached out to Dwayne Wolf, the designer of the new worker placement game Union Stockyards, to strike up a conversation about his new game and talk about Chicago steakhouses. The exchange ended with Dwayne mailing me a review copy of Union Stockyards, so I spent a good part of the summer playing the game at all four player counts. Two, three, four, and five players. There's no solo. I've come away from the experience knowing one thing for sure. Dwayne knows how to make a solid, quick, Euro-style game that checks a lot of my personal boxes. A game about Chicago's meatpacking industry from the late 1800s? Check. Public milestones, worker placement, and a whole bunch of tracks? Check. Market manipulation? Check. Bacon? Check. The possibility of a worker strike? Check. A tight, focused efficiency experience? That scales well with all player counts and can be played in an hour or less? Check, check, and check. Union Stockyards is an easy teach with lots of meaty decisions. You'll 
notice a theme here. Each of the game's six rounds starts by revealing a card from the event deck, which may raise or lower the current union spirit in the game. That spirit track? Well, if it ever goes into the red, workers go on strike, meaning that all players lose one of their precious meeples for that round. After that, players take actions. You can buy land on the small Packing Town map, where players can later build structures that provide a polyomino experience by placing wooden tokens and earning bumps on various meat tracks, cattle, sheep, and hogs. A brand reputation track becomes a race to score endgame points while also getting small bonuses and meat track bumps along the way. Branch house actions give players the chance to place tokens on spaces that can score small immediate bonuses and potentially endgame points if a player is able to build near the edge of Packing Town to unlock bonuses for each of the five cities where meat was shipped back in the day. The decision space here is interesting because the worker placement spots are so limited. There's a high likelihood that the space you might want is only going to be available on your current action. Pass this up, and you might miss out when another player snakes that spot later. The downtime here is low. The between-round cleanup is easy, with a simple adjustment made to the current profit margin marker on each meat tracker space, plus an election that is triggered if anyone takes the space to become first player. Only my five-player game of Union Stockyards took more than an hour, and even at that, it only took 90 minutes, which included a teach. Future five-player games will likely take about an hour, especially in games where strikes limit the number of available actions. Does Union Stockyards bring home the bacon? Mostly, yes, save for a few minor quibbles. I'm already four plays in and see a need for expansion content thanks to the limited event cards and options for the specialist cards, the name of those public milestones. Packing Town gets pretty crowded by the end of the game, and it's not a pretty sight as the jumble of buildings representing sausage factories and marketing departments and player slaughterhouses congeal into a not very interesting shade of beige. Union Stockyards doesn't do anything particularly innovative, such as the dice mechanic in Teletum or the 25-year-old bidding mechanics in a game like Ra. I'm okay with that, as long as a game does what it wants to do well. If you can get past these things, Union Stockyards is mostly a winner. For a meat lover who enjoys a good game and a great conversation about steak, it's hard to beat this offer. For more of my tabletop content, check out my profile at www.meeplemountain.com. You can also find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Justin Bell Says. That's J-U-S-T-I-N-B-E-L-L-S-A-Y-S. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and roll some dice. You've been listening to The 5 by your monthly source for board game reviews. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at 5bygames.com. If you like what we do here and want to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 5 games. And as always, thank you for listening. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.